Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So begin the discussion of this really important concept from Atlanta of shadow rates. Yeah. Well, the shadow rate, that's the hypothetical negative level of the Fed funds rate. This is where the Fed would have had to go if they wanted to have the same impact on the yield curve, on yields, as they had from QE and from forward guidance. So assume they had, there was no QE, there was no forward guidance, but the Fed wanted to depress yields. Go through the zero bound. So they bound. would have to go through the zero bound. And on right. this concept, on this model, they would have had to go all the way down to minus 3% to get the same impact that they got from QE and forward guidance. Right. So that's the shadow rate. So I'm at minus 3%, but we're not there. The actual rate is above zero. Well, it is above zero, but what happened was that shadow rate troughed in early 2014 at minus 3%, according to the model. And since then, the Fed has actually started to tighten policy. So Fed tightening has been going on from that hypothetical minus 3% level already for the last two years. So they have tightened rates by more than 300 basis points. How did they do this? Well, they ended QE, and they suggested through the blue dot plots that they would raise interest rates. Extend this out to the world for me. What would other central bank policy, what would other central banks, the ECB, the BOJ, extend the concept of shadow rates to them? What would they have looked like? Well, it's, it's very similar. The ECB is engaging in QE. The ECB has actually cut its own interest rate, its, its, its uh, deposit rate, into negative territory, but only slightly. And I think it's a fair assumption to believe that through the effect of QE uh, and forward guidance, they have actually pushed bond yields a lot lower into negative territory, actually. So the shadow rate for Europe would probably be low that minus 3%. Stop. And I would, I would guess the same is true for Japan. That's just stunning. This goes back to John Taylor of Stanford's very important work on his Taylor rule, which is a plug-in guesstimate of where we should be. None of that works in this milieu now, does it? Yeah, well, none of it works because the problem is that central banks cannot push rates aggressively negative. Mm-hmm. We've learned about the negative consequences of negative rates. So they use these other tools. So they use all these other tools. And uh, this is why... People have the wrong impression when they just look at the Fed funds rate and they say, well, the Fed funds rate has been unchanged uh, for a long time. It's abnormally low. They've only raised 25 basis points. So policy is still very expansionary. But if you if you factor in all these other factors, actually, policy has been tightening for the last two years. And so it's not surprising that the economy has slowed. It's not surprising that core inflation is not making further progress towards the target. And it should not be surprising that the yield yeah. curve has flattened so much. We are in a mature stage of the tightening cycle. Yeah. An eight-hour surveillance this morning, and for seven hours, 58 minutes of it, we speak with Daniel Jurgen. Dan, let's get to oil in a bit. Let's get to Margaret Thatcher and uh, Prime Minister May in a bit. But right now, a broader question. Back to your days at Yale University, have you ever seen the linkage of our economics, our finance, our investment, as we have right now? I think things are very tightly connected and uh, almost instantaneously. So it's a, it's a tighter ne- nexus than, than ever before. So I think that is the case. If that's the case, 
Are we in bad shape or good shape? I'm struggling to figure out exactly where we are right now. We seem to be just uh, kind of muddling along, but but the world hasn't collapsed. No, it's you know we've uh, we've seen recovery. Uh, it's been slower and weaker than other recoveries, but certainly. You know, and it's a mixed picture. Unemployment is down, but the number of people not in the workforce is, uh, has increased at the same time. Where do we go from here, do you think? Uh, is, it, is it possible to even say? You know, on, on a very broad thing, I think that, uh, you know, you keep having these series of surprise of which Brexit uh, has been the latest. And obviously, the U.S. presidential election, as you travel around the world, you know that people all over the world are, are watching it with just... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Fascination is not the quiet word, but, you know, what does it mean? What does it mean for the direction of the United States, uh, which has played the central role in the world community? And we're starting to see more and more two distinctly different patterns. Many know that one of my must-read books is The Commanding Heights. To say it is dated is wrong because it is timeless and is never more immediate now. Daniel Juergen, Baroness Thatcher plays a huge part in your book, your wonderful book, The Commanding Heights. Is Prime Minister May, are there elements there of Margaret Thatcher? Well, I think we, I mean, it would really be too early to say. I mean, she has this immediate uh, uh, sort of uh, self-induced crisis to deal with. You know, Winston Churchill once said that the problem with political suicide is that you live to regret it. And that's, I think, the problem that the, um, you know, both the British government and, and Britain will face. Uh, the kind of period of, uh, of uncertainty. And as, as I think you know, I, I revisited the commanding heights this week in, in my op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, uh, asking why have we seen the pendulum swing again uh, as much as we've seen it uh, swing from that kind of commitment to markets. And what really struck me was going back and reading the kind of economic reports from the Bill Clinton administration and how market-oriented they were uh, in the spirit of, you know, kind of building on what Thatcher and Reagan had talked about, the advantages of markets. We don't hear that much anymore. How much is history dependent on, I don't want to say the great man theory, could be the great woman theory, but the idea that a leader meets a moment in history and rises above it, and I think Baroness Thatcher would qualify there, uh, and change the world. You might put Ronald Reagan in that category, FDR. Um, are we looking for somebody like that right now, or does it make a real difference? Oh, I think uh, it does, particularly when you face a, a crisis. I mean, Britain at that point had its back against the wall when Margaret Thatcher came to, to power. People were talking that its economy was going to be less than you know, East Germany's, and uh, it just seemed to be in decline and couldn't get out of it. And it took a lot of, uh, of fortitude and standing her ground to make that happen. So leaders do matter because others might have just kind of continued to drift along. And so she had the courage of her convictions that certain personalities at certain times are absolutely critical. Do we have anybody on the stage that you, when you survey the world, is there anyone on the stage right now that you think could fill a role like that? Well, I don't see that right now. I think you'd have to say that uh, Chancellor Merkel has been, in a sense, the rock of Gibraltar for Europe during the turmoil but I think that the, um, you know, the, the decisions that Germany made about uh, immigrants, uh, that has uh, not only great consequences for Germany, but, you know, reverberates across Europe. But, I mean, if there hadn't been a Merkel there, uh, we could have uh, seen much worse in, in Europe. 
I, I look, Dan, and I want to get to oil in our next section as well. I think all of our listeners and all the commitment you've made to Bloomberg surveillance over the years would like to know not so much what you observe in Cleveland the last three days, the cacophony, but the task that Mr. Trump has tonight to somehow bring stability to his Republican Party. Well, um, this speech, you can be sure, is going to be very carefully vetted. Getting the messages right is going to be an enormous challenge, given the, the fissure in the Republican Party and the degree to which parts of the party have really rebelled against what have been its kind of overall commitments to market and trade. And, uh, you know, he is embodying uh, what is... Um, you know, become this kind of uh, the same thing we heard on the other side from Bernie Sanders about trade. One of the things that I, I talked about in the piece uh, in, yeah. in, in the journal was, you know, people used to think trade is good and that, you know, the benefits are great. And, they're, and you know, look at it. We wouldn't have our iPhones. Uh, we'd pay whole different prices for so many different things. And we wouldn't have, you know, we have 41 million jobs in the United States. Uh, over one in five jobs that depend upon the U.S. being part of global trade. And to walk away from that or disrupt it uh, will have uh, uh, big costs uh, for the U.S. economy and for U.S. workers. Daniel Jurgen with us on oil right now. And, Dan, it's supply, 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 supply. Out of nowhere in the last three weeks, we're hearing guys like you talk about demand microeconomics, and demand dynamics. Phil Verliger, among others, say the estimates of demand and demand growth are flat out wrong. Where are you on this? Well, I'm not sure which ones Mr. Verliger was talking about, but uh, our view is that uh, we'll see in uh, this year about a 1.2, uh, 1. Yeah, 1.2 million barrel a day growth, and we see that same kind of growth uh, in the next uh, year. Uh, the one thing that's brought down growth a little bit in our estimates is Brexit, and we think that maybe that will cost by 2017 a couple hundred thousand barrels a day because of weaker growth in Europe, uncertainty, and its impact on trade. But we see over a five-year period demand growing by five to six million barrels a day unless, um, unless we have a very weak global economy. What's your forecast for the global economy then? I mean, in, 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 as we go towards the end of the year, uh, what is demand going to be like, and how is that going to affect prices? I know it's a complicated dynamic because we don't know at what price we bring the frackers back in. Right. Uh, I think that we, um, you know, are now now IHS market, and our, our growth forecast is, uh, you know, probably not too different from the consensus around 2% or so for the, for the global economy. In terms of, as you say, the frackers, and interestingly, one of the most prominent frackers addressed the Republican convention, Harold Hamm, yesterday. I think that we're, you know, we're seeing a little uptick in activity. We see rig count up the last several weeks by 40, but have to remember that about 1,300 rigs have been laid down. But in some parts of, uh, you know, particularly in the Permian Basin in Texas and into New Mexico, that's... uh, that's the area where you're kind of seeing the beginnings of rebound in activity. But you probably need oil prices in the 50s to 60s to see, you know, a real incre- increase. So we're still thinking that, you know, the U.S. is still in, in, in decline. 
And that's one of the things that has been uh, key for seeing oil prices where they are now. Well, how high can they go? What would it take to get oil prices up into the 50s and keep them there? If you see U.S. Uh, growth, uh, uh, the decline continuing, uh, disruptions. Remember, we were there. It was sort of the market getting ahead of itself. Uh, in this age in which there's OPEC doesn't function, it's a much more volatile market. But um, it would, you know, seem global demand and you know, you just look at the numbers and you look at the cutbacks in investment that have happened and uh, and then demand growth, and there's going to be a need for, you're not going to get uh, the supply we need without prices providing more of a signal for activity. I think the major companies are, for the most part, still uh, still in a, in a cutback mode. Do you believe in IMF forecasts? You're a great viewer of the scene. You do lots of work at Davos with question. us. <laughs> and that I, I'm always stunned at how people rip apart the crystal ball of the IMF when we all know as a science forecasting is uh, suspect to begin with. But, well, I think I, we wouldn't. I wouldn't just say the IMF. I think all the forecasters, yeah. you know, struggle with economic growth, and you see this tendency. The year starts off with higher estimates, and then as the year progresses, the pattern has been for those to come back. I think that. Uh, you know, there's clearly continues to be, uh, uh, you know, rightly this concern about these relatively low levels of growth. I think it was actually uh, uh, Christine Lagarde, the head of the IMF, who coined this phrase, uh, the new mediocre to describe a global economy that grows, but, uh, but at a mediocre pace and doesn't provide the kind of uh, greater growth that we need. And uh, I think the negativism about trade and trade policy contributes uh, to that. It had been an article of um, political faith among uh, the party meeting now at its national convention that you needed to drill, drill, drill uh, more oil. Uh, we now have a lot of oil. On a nonpartisan basis, going forward, since OPEC is kind of you know, comatose and since we have fracking, et cetera, in, in just one minute, if you could give me what an energy policy should be going forward, what would be the best thing for the United States? Well, in, in one word, I think it would be, a, I would call an ecumenical energy policy that re, realizes that, uh, that there, it's not a zero, some choice between them, uh, and to get, kind of get that balance and, and not have it be uh, any ideological choices. I mean, what has happened in the United States with this unconventional revolution really is a revolution, enormous impact on the economy, on the world. And it's something that, you know, even the people in the middle of it never saw it achieving the kind of scale that it, it has achieved. Dan Jurgen, thank you so much. Congratulations on your important essay in the journal the other day. Uh, I can't say enough, folks, again, about a update of your reading with Commanding Heights. It is uh, a, a bit older, but talks beautifully about the United Kingdom uh, that Prime Minister May um, inherits. We have been talking a lot about what's been going on with the European Central Bank, and Brexit has just absolutely dominated the news. But, Tom, yeah. uh, quietly, while all this has been going on, the Chinese currency has been moving around a lot, and there is a G20 meeting in China yes. starting on Friday. And uh, there are suggestions yeah. that while we're focused on uh, what's happening across the Atlantic, policymakers are focused on what's happening across yeah. the Pacific. I spoke to Magdalene Lagarde about that earlier this week and the quiet of this Chengdu meeting. And you really wonder if it's that quiet, if it'll really make news. 
Tao Wang is with us in our New York studios. And to be direct, she had one of the great challenges of economics, filling the giant shoes of Jonathan Anderson, who was legendary with UBS in China economics. All of us read every single word that Jonathan Anderson wrote on his China. And you've done the miracle of miracle, Tao. You took over for Jonathan Anderson and drove forward UBS research. And Thank you so we're much. We're honored to have you here. And I'll tell you, to fill in day one after John Anderson must have been something. The Gloom crew has been wrong all along, pre-John Anderson, Jonathan Anderson, and Tao Wang. They've always got it wrong. Why does the hard landing crew get China wrong? Well, I think the... Um it's always very difficult to time uh, the, the crisis or time the, the hard landing. Um, and I think the, the, you know, super bears are, you know, they have valid points about problems building up in the, in the Chinese system where they may have underestimated is the levers the Chinese government has at play. It's a very interventionist government and they have a lot of lever, especially on uh, fiscal policy, but also uh, there's high savings in China, even though you know, Chinese debt seems to be high and rising, but with very strong and high domestic savings, they can afford to continue to do that. I think this is uh, perhaps why uh, super bears underestimate. Well, the Chinese official growth rate, uh, 6.7%, matches their estimate. No surprise there. The real question everybody wants to know in the black box that is the Chinese economy, how fast is China really going and how fast do they need to grow? Well, so those are two very difficult questions. I'm not sure we have the, the you know, accurate answer. Um, I think most people perhaps believe that um, the growth is um, overestimated. But on the other hand, you know, if we only look at steel and transport and electricity and so on, we perhaps only look at the sectors that are uh, really doing badly. And where services and consumer uh, spending are still pretty resilient, I think it's probably somewhere, you know, around five-ish, um, you know, realistically, but I couldn't say. Um, how fast can, you know, does China need to grow? It seems the current pace is sufficient uh, to make sure there's no major unemployment. Um, and China doesn't need really 6.5% even to get um, get social stability, which is the key that the government worry about. So I think they actually should relax and, and lower the target and maybe make the data, you know, more realistic. Very quickly here, what is the uh, the renminbi call for UBS? Our call is uh, 6.8 against the dollar this year. So we're getting there. We're getting there fast. We are getting there fast, but uh, it seems that the authorities are defending 6.7 recently, despite the dollar strength in the last couple of days. Mm -hmm. uh, the PBC ap appear to have intervened uh, at the close of the market to help them set a stronger currency the next day. Um, we, our view is that because of you know, China-U.S. relations, but also because the government does want to, to show relative stability, mm -hmm. uh, they may take the chance, you know, sort of take cover under Brexit to move the currency a bit, but they don't want right. to do it too much. Tell Wang with us, with UBS, usually in Asia, here in our New York studios, and we could go all morning. I want to talk about something. I'm reading Ruth Benedict, 1946, on Japan. In the beginning of the book, this is after World War II, is the stark, massive distinction between Japan and China society. 
bring it forward 60 years, how Lockean or individualistic is the new Chinese generation? Are they, are they radically different than their parents? Are they radically different than their grandparents? I would say they are very different. I don't know how radical, but uh, I think, yeah, so... You know, it, it's also just the transformation of the society um, and, the, you know, economic regime. Individuals have more freedom. Nowadays, young people make their, their decisions about where to work uh, without the intervention of the state and certainly less intervention from their parents, but also in terms of their marriage. And now we, we in Chinese, we have a term called uh, uh, moon, you know, moon gone. Basically, every month, your salary is gone. So, you know, this this notion that uh, Chinese are love to save, we'll see in a 10 to 20 years when young people become the, you know, mainstream, they don't seem to save as much nearly as, as their parents. I think that's probably similar to how savings rate had moved in Japan as well. Well, would you characterize the, uh, China as a consumer society in the same way the United States is? Are, are the young people buying stuff on the internet uh, at, at the same rate and uh, watching uh, their devices constantly? Um, I, I think we're not quite there yet um, because people probably like myself and older uh, generations are still uh, big savers. Um, and, and, you know, China got rich very quick. People's mindset, uh, those people's mindset don't change so fast. But young people, yes, they do consume a lot. They spend uh, a lot of time on, on their gadgets, whether it's, um, you know, WeChat or Internet or games <coughs> and shopping. Yeah. You know, people actually can renovate their homes all through Internet. Um, buying everything do, through the internet. Do they have a respect, and going into the Politburo meetings here, do they have a respect for the government? Do the young people have a respect? Um, well, I, th I think there, um, I think there's some tension. Perhaps there are, you know, there, there's um, real proud in, in among many Chinese how about how the Chinese government has handled the economy, the crisis um, that they have control. But there's also a lot of complaints, uh, especially on things that. Uh, affect the daily lives of normal citizens, so food safety, uh, drug safety, pollutions, corruptions, and so on. So there's also um, strong undercurrents there. It may not be very uh, apparent as here or somewhere else, but I think it's there. Well, how do you move the Chinese off their high propensity to save? Well, I think one important thing is to build a better social safety net, um, so that people uh, know that they have social security, they have pension when they retire, they don't have to save too much, and also, most importantly, have health care insurance because you you can never really calculate but, uh, how, how much are your those life things is worth. Coming? Yes, those things are coming. In the last few years, the government has has pushed uh, very uh, steadfastly on that front to increase the coverage and increase the the, um, the national uh, polling of that. Um, I think another thing is is actually to uh, reform of the you know the SOEs, the state-owned enterprises, to reduce the corporate saving and corporate borrowing as well. When you, I mean, you're you're sitting over there. Uh, we're all trying to figure out what matters when the data come out. What do you look at? What really, what data tell you what's really going on to the extent that you can figure it out in the Chinese economy? Um, so for me, I yeah, I, I look at it a few things. I think the, the big 
volatile components, um, we pay a lot of attention, and uh, that tend to be property related, so property sales, property starts. That tells me a lot about what may happen to, you know, steel and coal and transport, all the heavy industry related stuff. Um, And also, we know that a big lever the government pulls is actually credit. So credit and monetary data is important. That is not very, um, you know, market driven is actually a way that government supports growth. And uh, finally, I also look at exports, imports, and, and I would uh, double check that data, cross check that mm-hmm. data with, you know, U.S., uh, you know, consumer spending, U.S. imports and uh, European imports as well. And, um, and then consumer spending. But uh, we also cross check that with, you know, migrant wage growth, um, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, internet spending, tourism arrivals, and, and so on. How would you adapt, or rather, how should President Trump or President Clinton adapt our economic policy to China? Wow. <laughs> um, and you've got 25 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah. Um, So that's a a very difficult question. Well, I I, I think that I I hope that uh, whoever becomes president then in the United States, that they will continue to work with China in terms of continued global sort of integration of the global economy instead of, you know, moving back the trend. I think China has really benefited from from globalization um, and U.S. as well, probably in different ways. Um, So the rise of China shouldn't be seen as a threat. I I hope there's, you know, mutual benefit. So um, and and the U.S. can perhaps be more, um, you know, focus on Chinese consumers and rather than, you know, look at just the the um, exchange rate and so on, and also perhaps help um, China to avoid, um, you know, crisis that everybody fears. Um, there are certainly a lot of problems, you know, help help to work with China on, you know, some of the SOE reforms and fiscal reforms, instead of just focusing on currency and um, uh, financial markets opening. I need to focus on currency, though. <laughs> with, the, uh, with the G20 meeting uh, the, coming up this weekend, uh, We've seen the the yuan uh, decline against the dollar, but even more significantly against the the basket. Which is the most important measure at this point in the currency market, um, the basket or the dollar? I think most people are still watching dollar CNY. Um, the basket, um, you know, the, the government, the PBC says they're referencing more to the basket, but they also said we are not pegging to the basket. We're looking at dollar CNY as well. That I would say it's it's used as a discretion. Um, in recent weeks, actually, the CNY hasn't depreciated much against the basket. It's more against the dollar when the dollar strengthens. Uh, much of the depreciation against the basket happened when dollar was weak. So they were happy to ride the dollar weakness if the market allows them. So it's a really opportunistic approach. Um, so if I think if the market allows them, a little bit of depreciation can be useful, can be can be helpful, given that, you know, domestic economy is really weak. Is this, a, and I only have 10 seconds here, but is this manipulation or is it opportunism, as you say? I would say it's an opportunism because actually if they, they're still intervening heavily in the market to defend the currency. If they didn't want to, you know, if they wanted it to depreciate a lot, they could easily have done that. So the market wants it lower. Yes. 
Tawin, thank you very much. Thank you. I mean, it's great to have you here. Have somebody you know with the yeah. expertise actually in the studio. Very good, Tawin. Thank My you pleasure. so much with uh, uh, UBS. Bring in our next guest on the backstory of the New York Times interview of yesterday. Nobody's talking about it. Well, it caught my eye first thing because, of course, the convention is showbiz. But Donald Trump gave an interview to Maggie Haberman and to David Sanger of the New York Times. They pick up where they left off with him earlier this year on foreign policy. Basically, he said if if the Europeans don't pay up, they're on their own. NATO is dead. He's not going to defend any of the countries in Europe. Uh, a remarkable statement, almost, uh, some say, an invitation to Vladimir Putin to invade the Baltic nations. Greg Valle is the polit- chief political analyst for Horizon Investments. And, Greg, I know this caught your eye, too. Just astonishing, Mike. The fact that he would say that, you know, it, how do you feel this morning if you live in uh, Lithuania or Latvia? I mean, the, <laughs> his comments were just absolutely astonishing. If you live there, you're you're feeling like you wish you could register to vote in the U.S., I presume. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Maybe he'll moderate it. You know, maybe you know, people can get to him. But if these are his real beliefs, it's still another reason why people like Ted Cruz still have support in the party. He goes on to say that he uses his standard formulation. Some people say the coup in Turkey was staged. Well, that's a tactic of his. He says, well, some people would say that Ted Cruz's father was involved in John Kennedy's assassination. You know, not that I would say that, but some people would say that. Yeah, that takes us right where Tom wanted to go to the to the convention last night. Jaw-dropping. Ted Cruz. <clears throat> uh, revenge is a, a dish best eaten cold, I guess. <laughs> well, I, I did a piece this morning. I talked about three three reasons why I did it. Number one, just revenge. I mean, Trump mocked Cruz's uh, wife, called him lying Ted. Number two, I think an awful lot of conservatives look at Donald Trump and see someone who is not a conservative on issue after issue. And then finally, number three, uh, Cruz is running in 2020, along with about a dozen other people. And I think uh, Cruz wants to make it clear that he's going to be a big player in 2020. Uh, Greg, we could go, Lily, for two hours this morning on this. I, the most interesting thing for me, Greg, was to watch my children watch the show last night. The prism that they have is not what we have. Compare and contrast, and your notes recently have been brilliant on this, where they are versus AUH20, 1964, Wendell Wilkie, thank you, Arthur Levitt, 1940, or William Jennings Bryan of another era. Compare and contrast. Well, I understand the appeal of populism, but populists have never done very well in general elections. William Jennings Bryan lost three times in general elections. I think the thing that really stands out for me, and of course we still have tonight to go, but is the amateurism is it's really not ready for prime time uh... i don't think they project an image that would make people people feel comfortable about a trump presidency what can he say tonight uh, what would you expect him to say what can he say that could change any viewpoints about him and his policies yeah it's a good point mike i mean i think that you know, they had two objectives. One was to demonize Hillary Clinton, and my God, they certainly have done that. Uh, and second is to give people reasons to vote for Donald Trump. They have not done that. I think he needs to lay out some kind of an agenda. And, 
as we all know, he's pretty vague on anything that he would actually do. I mean, I don't want to disparage him totally. I mean, he's got a populist message that resonates with a lot of people who uh, are very upset over seeing their real you know, disposable income stagnant for a decade. He'll talk about that, but I'm not sure. I wrote this morning, I don't even think Winston Churchill could save this convention. I don't think one speech is going to do it. Well, then, the, what is the prescription for the party? I mean, I, I understand they got to get to Friday. Whatever anybody's political persuasion is, I guess the goal is to try to not do any more harm. What's the then what, Greg Vallier? Obviously, uh, Secretary Clinton gets her moment. But then what is the then what in this unconventional uh, party? Well, I think, Tom, for the, for the Republicans, for the Koch brothers, for the Ricketts family that will still contribute money, it's the other races. It's the Senate. It's the House. That's still in play. The Senate is definitely in play. So I think you'll see a lot of activity focused there. But... You know, you, you look at the Trump staff, uh, less than 100 people. Uh, you look at their, uh, their rookies. Rookies make rookie mistakes. It's going to be awfully hard to bounce back quickly after this convention. Well, clearly, I mean, they, they've all been, all the speakers have been saying, let's unify, unify, unify. And clearly that's not going to happen. But yep. is it going to get worse? Are they going to go the other way as the full nature of the Trump campaign is revealed in these kinds of episodes, are we going to see more people maybe pulling back from their endorsements and uh, every man for himself, woman for herself in terms of trying to elect people down ballot? Yeah, let's let's see what the polls look like after the Democrats at, at the end of next week. Eight days from now, we'll see how the polls look. If they show Hillary Clinton is comfortably ahead, then I think you'll really feel a sense of panic in the party. But, you know, the polls might show there's still only a four or five point race. If that's true, I think a lot of people like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, who in private can't stand Trump, will put on a good face and they'll they'll try to win this. Where is the, is that the popular vote that they're four percent apart on, or is that state by state battleground? You know, the states that matter. Yeah, that's an important distinction. I, I think that in the battlegrounds, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, North Carolina, Florida, it's pretty close. At least it was before this convention started. But that's not enough to get you 270. I think to get 270 he'd, uh, electoral votes, he'd have to do a bit better. Uh, there were some polls that showed him closing the gap in some states, like Florida. Do you take those at face value? Has he actually moved? You know, the the, the old adage, I think, is true, Mike, that the, the polls really don't mean a lot until you get both conventions out of the way. So I would submit that in early August, the polls will really start to mean a lot. And I do think some of these states will uh, stay close. But, uh, again, they have not helped themselves. I mean, he does need to make a really extraordinary, compelling speech tonight to get back on track. Do you think he will? Well, you know, he's going to read from the teleprompter, and he's pretty stiff when he does that. He doesn't read. Watch yourself. That's what I do in radio. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's... You know, Obama's really good at it, and, and of course Trump mocked him for it, but Trump's going to use a teleprompter tonight, and that's not his strong suit. So I, I'm not sure it'll be compelling. And I tell you, if he revisits an issue like maybe not defending the Baltic states, if he talks about America first, like he did in that interview, uh, the, the post-speech spin is going to be about all of these very controversial positions that he has. Very quickly, let me ask you this. Without jinxing the good people of Cleveland. But are you surprised that 
it's been as dull as it has been. There haven't been any, you know, civil dis- disturbances, that sort of thing that people predicted. Yeah, you know, everybody talked about this is going to be Chicago 1968. It hasn't been. Uh, and I actually think there's going to be more disruptive protests in Philadelphia next week at the Democrats' convention. Interesting. Uh, one final question, 30 seconds, Greg Vellier, and we treasure your notes and your attendance. What would William Loeb III say? Iconic at the Manchester Union, leader of New- your New Hampshire. What would William Loeb III say about Mr. Trump? Well, we could talk about ego, his style, all of this stuff, but I think at the core, uh, real conservatives like Loeb and George Will see someone who is not a real conservative. Greg, let's move east from Cleveland to Philadelphia next week. Hillary Clinton gets her chance. Interesting cover story in Time magazine coming out today. They note that she has been a fixture on the American political scene for 40 years, 40 years. And yet everybody feels they know Bill Clinton really well. And nobody really knows this woman. Uh, You know, she's she is not warm and fuzzy. She is not the kind of person that you can say, you know, I know what she's thinking. Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, she's enigmatic, one might say, uh, and somewhat uh, unknown. It, there was a story, I guess a m- month ago, where Trump, I think, said that uh, Hillary Clinton wasn't religious. She's actually devoutly religious, has been for all of her life. There are a lot of things about her that people just don't know. Are they going to fix that in Philadelphia? Oh, I'm sure. I, I think it'll be well done. First of all, they're going to get Bernie Sanders out of the way on Monday, which is a smart move, as we've seen after the Cruz fiasco. Uh, so, yes, I think it's going to be very well choreographed. I don't see a lot of the same, you know, amateur problems we've seen this week. So, yeah, I think the public will get a better feel for just who she is. I was surprised within the, you know, the, the Twitter sphere. Uh, Greg, how all of a sudden former President Clinton was weighing in on Kane of Virginia. Is is Mr. Clinton going to be pushed aside in Philadelphia, or does he, like, come out and be front and center? What's that dynamic right now? Probably the latter. I think the base, the activists in the party, adore him, and I think he'll play a big role. But once that's over, I think you look at Bill's mistakes, the disastrous visit with Loretta Lynch on the tarmac in Phoenix, uh, some other problems that where Bill's comments have had to be, you know, clarified. You know, I think as we get into the general election, Bill will not be quite as dominant. Got to ask you about who's going to be the number three person in the White House, the vice president behind <laughs> Hillary and Bill. We're, we're told now it's a kind of a contest between Tim Kaine and Tom Vilsack. And, you know, you got um, not a lot of pizzazz there. Is Hillary feeling like she's in, she doesn't need to roll the dice or take a chance? Yeah, most people who know her say she's quite risk-averse, so Tim Kaine would be perfect. I don't see a big downside. He comes from a state that has 13 electoral votes. That's a big deal. Yeah, even even Kaine says he's boring, uh, but I don't think he'd hurt her. And we can see in history, with a few notable exceptions like JFK picking Lyndon Johnson, you know, running mate doesn't mean all that much. So I think Kaine would be a perfect uh, Hickenlooper of Colorado, Vilsack. The, the wild card that's the most intriguing to me is a retired admiral or general, somebody who's really good on uh, geopolitical issues like terrorism. Maybe uh, Admiral Stravitas from 
Tufts University. Yeah, he's he's, he's <laughs> apparently impressed everyone that has uh, met with him. It's a long shot. I still think Kane is the safest mm. bet. Uh, but I think the Admiral is not totally out of the running. Well, okay. He, he no. has impressed Tom and I, the regular guest here. Yeah, we talk to him all the time, full disclosure, folks, yes. on that. I put out a Twitter shot that some student took at Tufts of the door of uh, Dean Stravitas' office. It, is He was no doubt waiting for a phone call from uh, from the secretary. Greg Vallier, let's cut to the chase of your important note. How close is this election? I think right now it's the, the issue is will Hillary Clinton win modestly? Or will she win in a landslide? I think those are the, the two yeah. most likely scenarios. You know, you can't rule out a Trump move in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan. You can't rule out this being uh, close. But I think that I'm right now saying she wins by four, five, six points. That mm-hmm. is not enough to flip the House back to the Democrats. And that's a big deal for the markets. I think if the markets see her winning but with divided government and Congress, the markets can live with that. Greg Villiers, brilliant. Thank you so much. Always appreciate it with Horizon, with terrific analysis. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.